Because the old model of I'm just going to grow and I don't need to show profits, that regime is gone. And so now you need to have a balanced business model. For that, you need a proper balance sheet. So you're going to need deposit liquidity and you'll need good assets to lend against. And they don't all have that universally. Welcome to episode 11 of the Deciphered podcast by Bain & Company. On this podcast, we unpack the stats to give you an in-depth perspective on different topics relating to fintech and the financial services industry. I'm your host, Adam Davis. I'm an associate partner at Bain & Company within our global fintech and financial services team. The title of this episode is Banking Liquidity. Is the talk of a crisis fair? And I'll provide a little bit of background. Over the past three months, you couldn't have missed the headlines about the banking sector wherever you live in the world. Years of fiscal stimulus, loose monetary policy and banks handling of excess liquidity is causing new stresses on banks, not just in the US, but across the pond into Europe and beyond. When the banking system and broader economy find their footing, and we'll discuss when that might be on today's show, we will enter in theory a new reality of, at least initially, high rates and greater volatility. Of course, the old saying is that you invest into innovation during a downturn. And whilst that is somewhat true, banks, neobanks, challengers and FIs must develop strategic hedges around liquidity, capital cost and profitability. The situation at the moment is being called a crisis and benchmarked in some quarters against the great financial crisis of 2008. And the question we want to answer is, is that fair? To discuss all this and more, we've brought together an all Bain lineup with some of the most experienced minds within our FS capability. The first up being Joe Fielding, who's a partner working out of our New York office and leads a substantial amount of our US FS business. How are you doing, Joe? I'm great, Adam. It's lovely to have you here. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the work that you do in the US and some of the things that you focus on? Sure, Adam. Thanks. Uh, I lead Bain's banking sector in the Americas, and uh, a lot of the work I do is transformational work with financial services leaders and challengers across topics of strategy, operations, technology. And specific to today's discussion, I published several pieces on disequilibrium in banking, and I lead the work we've done around liquidity and deposits management. And joining the two of us is Maria Teresa Tejada. I got that right, MTT, I think. (laughs) Amazing. We call you MTT, which I'll continue to do on this podcast. You work out of our San Francisco office. Can you describe again a little bit about your background, your specialisms, and what you work on in Bain? Thank you, Adam. I'm actually a former banking and risk practitioner. I spent about 30 years across three large banks in a variety of roles. The last 20 were in risk roles, including the chief credit officer and the chief risk officer of banks. But I brought that insight to Bain in April of 2020. And since then, I've been advising banking clients globally on a broad range of topics, including strategy, governance, and risk, among others, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Uh, and we're also joined by Julio Nasso, who's a partner in our Milan office and Bain's European resident expert in all matters liquidity, and also author of plenty of our POVs as well that are on Bain.com. Uh, Julio, great to have you here. Thank you, Adam. And uh, hi, MTT. Hi, Joe. Many thanks for you. Uh, and uh, many thanks uh, for me. Is a uh, very pleasure to have the chance to chat uh, about liquidity with you. I'm a partner uh, of financial services practice. I joined in Bain uh, 50 years ago. I am a member of banking practice in particular, and uh, I'm part of the task force about uh, risk uh, and capital. And in the last months, uh, I had the chance to chat about uh, 
liquidity with several banks uh, and uh, to work within Bain uh, in a specific group uh, that studied the situation of the new environment, the macroeconomic environment uh, and the impact of the new environment uh, on the financial service. Great to have you. Right, we'll get on with the show and we start as we always do with the answer first. So as everybody knows who listens to this, it's essentially having a relatively formed hypothesis using the facts, the stats, the brains from Bain. We always adapt it for this podcast uh, and we ask our guests to do sort of a, a 30 second to a minute answer, I guess, on the top line question. And Joe, I'll come to you first. So banking liquidity, is the talk of a crisis fair? Well, certainly, Adam, it's a great question. We've seen signs of a crisis with bank failures in the U.S. and the battle for deposit liquidity around commercial and consumer clients. However, I would characterize this as a regime change in the world of banking around rates and liquidity. Because after 15 years of the low-rate environment and post-financial crisis, we pulled the plug on liquidity to fight inflation, and the money's in motion. And so this financial system is changing the search for yield and sustainability. And we're at the very early stages of what I expect is a major regime shift as it relates to deposits, liquidity, and the banking system. That's my answer. I think it is really a turning point in many ways in that, uh, you know, what's transpired in the U.S. these last couple months, I think, has shed light on the importance of managing risk and the awareness and the engagement of Firstline in particular, our businesses and our functions, in not just managing risk, but anticipating and mitigating risk. So I just wanted to highlight that for our audience, because I think that's a very important theme applied broadly and more notably now to capital and liquidity. So my my answer first is uh, no, we are not facing a new banking crisis, but we are facing a turning point for the banking system. If we see the current situation versus the last big financial crisis, uh, the banking industry is totally different. No, Generally speaking, banks are more capitalized, more controlled, uh, with stronger resilience and also more profitable. So the macroeconomic environment uh, has changed very, very fast and the bank uh, has uh, to adapt very fast. Not uh, a new crisis, uh, but uh, for sure uh, a, a big challenges for the banks. Let's move on and we'll deep dive a little bit on some of those points now in the main section. I'll start this off with a little bit of what we're seeing at the moment and it will sort of delve into what we think the biggest influences are, obviously, of what's happened thus far and then also just how severe the situation is that we find ourselves in. Joe, I'll probably go first to you. Many people have heard mixed opinions, I guess, to the severity of this period in banking. And I guess, again, holistically, do you think this will be more or less challenging than other periods that have seen such dramatic upward rate cycles? It's going to be challenging in new way. It's going to put new pressure on the business models, the competitors, by insurgents creating opportunities, but also challenges. Because not since the mid-2000s have we really had rates at the levels that they are now. And we've obviously had some casualties, First Republic, Signature, SCB. But even the central bank's predictions for rapid reversion back to a low-rate environment have been wrong for over a year now. And why is that? The systemic pressures, labor, wages, wholesale and consumer prices, deposit liquidity, they're still very much with us. And so those challenges are likely to persist. And so what we're seeing is the effects of that. We're still in the very early stages of what is, again, I think of as a regime change where deposit liquidity is draining from the system and we're having a pretty substantial mix shift, which we can talk about. We're right at the beginning of that shift. 
the concept of regime change is really interesting. We'll definitely talk about that in a sec. In terms of what the catalyst for all this, so there's a bunch of different reasons that uh, play out in the media at the moment in terms of what actually started this. I've tried to do them in relatively chronological order. Obviously, the past few years, quantitative easing has led to massive credit excess generally in the US, not so much in Europe, but it's been definitely a thing. Interest rate rises, obviously, and the subsequent struggle to reprice those deposit books since the rates have gone up is something that's, I think, pretty much universal across banks at the moment. Bad investments of liquidity assets running out treasury departments, bank runs in themselves, so not necessarily just the runs, but also the short selling and the public markets and their reactions to some of this, or all of the above. Is it all sort of has come together to act as a catalyst or is there one that you would sort of put over the other? Well, I think you've listed uh, the right list, Adam, but I would just step back to say, to some extent on the back of the global financial crisis, we may have developed a false sense of security assuming that the banks were well capitalized. But I think we all know that it's liquidity that typically will prompt a run on the bank. It is not concerns around capital first and foremost, but capital is an important cushion or buffer. And in many ways, I think what we're seeing play out right now, just based on the list you shared, is it's really a survival of the fittest. In many ways, I think it's healthy that such a trigger or a dislocation may have prompted banks to look more critically and analytically at what exactly do they have in the forms of, you know, liquidity that is consumer funded, wholesale funded, because that mix is critically important. But there's also an element of sentiment and consumer confidence that plays into this. And I think what we saw happen recently, especially here on the West Coast, which was the epicenter of the crisis, is concerns magnified by social media and the rate at which those adversely impacted the banks in terms of deposit withdrawals was truly unprecedented. So I think once we move beyond this and we leverage the learnings of these past few months, I think banks are gonna be stronger and better for their ability to actually leverage techniques and data and peer comparisons to say, are not just they adequately capitalized, but are they also reliant on the right forms of liquidity? And do they have contingency plans in place to work through the next set of challenges? And we've talked about credit being one of a handful of others that we're going to see manifest over the next few quarters. Julia, I'll come to you. I mean, looking at the US, but also maybe looking at some banks in Europe as well that that we've got proximity to. Is it a case that the next bank that looks like SVB, First Republic, is in trouble? Yeah, of course, there is uh, some specific situation. No? There, there are some banks that uh, have a specific concentration in terms of, of liquidity, in terms of deposit, uh, or uh, concentration in terms of uh, asset, uh, in particular in fixed income and security. So uh, this is a situation that could be more under stress. Uh, there is another important point of view that we have to analyze, that is the, let me say, the market trend the price of the CDS of the banks and uh, the trend uh, in the share price. We analyze overall the situation. We have also a permanent uh, observatory of the of the banks around the world. What we see is that uh, the situation for single geographic area and a single type of bank could be very different. Overall, in US, we have uh, banks be very good in terms of uh, liquidity position in particular uh, big banks 
are very good in liquidity position. The situation is more different for the regional ones. Also in Asia and Middle East, uh, we have uh, banks uh, overall uh, in a good position in terms of, uh, of liquidity. In Europe, uh, the situation is, uh, could be different, in particular after June 2023, when uh, some tranche of uh, TLTRO will be refunded. And so some banks could be in a situation of uh, stress. In general, in South America, in, uh, in the Latin countries, uh, now the situation is safe, uh, but the situation of several banks uh, could be under stress, in particular if uh, we expect uh, a new war for deposit. This is uh, overall the situation uh, in terms of... Uh, so no a contagion uh, for sure, but uh, the necessity to manage the single situation uh, in a good way. I was just going to build on that because I think you raised some great points around what's the next bank. And I think what we're going to start to see is if there's no one major bubble, a lot's been written about the next stage of the crisis and credit risk from commercial real estate, especially office, you know, leverage lending is trending, you know, defaults are trending up, but it's going to be a lot of little bubbles that pop along the way. And any one player that's overexposed to the wrong area is going to be the next institution in crisis. But I think Julia said it right, which is it's not going to be a, a, a major crisis. It's going to be a single set of bad bets that cause, you know, any individual participant to be in trouble, effectively. And MTT, how much has deregulation in your mind led to this? So I'm thinking about it now from a US perspective. But there has been somewhat of a process of deregulation and maybe sort of, I wouldn't say a lack of oversight, but lesser oversight on certain types of banks, depending on their balances, et cetera. And how much do you believe that that's been a significant contributory factor? Or do you think that actually it's more sort of on the bank's fault that they couldn't manage the processes themselves and, and, and their positions? I think there was a push for more regulation on the back of the global financial crisis. And then in 2018 in the US, there was the introduction of the tailoring rules, which looked to differentiate the regulatory requirement that were on the banks in the U.S., depending on asset size. I would argue at this point, Adam, that I think it's too early to say if that actually had any impact. I think what it did is by differentiating the regulatory requirements around things like capital and liquidity stress testing, it did give banks more time to enhance some of these processes. But let's be clear, for banks that were already doing CCAR capital planning prior to 2018, they continued doing that annually, even once these requirements were modified. So I think there is a lot of opportunity here to say it's not about having regulation in place. It's about having good regulation that actually is complemented by the right supervisory oversight. Because among the things that we've learned uh, more recently in some of the reports that have been published by the U.S. regulators on the situation these past many months is that there was also a focus on oversight and engagement with the banks, but not necessarily to the degree of action or enforcement that you might have expected. So even the regulators are stepping back to better reassess. You know, it's not the changes in the tailoring rules that came into play in 2018 that I think caused the crisis. But it's also an element of to what extent were the banks able to stay current on how they assess their capital position, assess their liquidity position. And the crisis of confidence that played out in March is something that 
would have been very difficult to anticipate how quickly and within about 48 hours this impacted one of the larger banks in the U.S. It's interesting to build on that because even the adverse stress scenarios didn't anticipate the kind of inflation. I mean, if you look at the rates that were baked into the stress scenarios, they were vastly uh, understated, the actual inflation rates that we saw. So one could argue or ask the question, were they sufficient? I think you bring up a great point, Joe, because that's the banks would have gone through a CCAR exercise in the U.S., the larger banks, just this past year. And the types of variables that informed the scenarios did not seem to reflect the reality of what banks have actually experienced, which is also very telling. If I move on a little bit to how we would fix the problem. So we've sort of outlined some of the contributory reasons of where we find ourselves. In terms of uh, how you actually fix it, Hula, I'll start with you. Is there a playbook in your mind in terms of how you stop this? Is there something which is, I know, as you said, it's quite bank dependent, but is there a, you know, a set of rules, set of guidelines, frameworks, et cetera, that you would put in play now to almost stop not just the deposit escape, but improve liquidity pictures individually? Of course, yes, we are called Santal. And uh, yeah. we, <laughs> of course, yes, we think that uh, overall the banks have to have uh, an holistic approach to face the new liquidity challenges. Also considering uh, the fact that uh, in the last 10 years, uh, the liquidity cost uh, was zero. We described our approach in our liquidity point of view that, let me say, it's the results of several experience uh, from myself, from Joe, from TT, but uh, from also other colleagues. So is a pragmatic uh, approach is not uh, only theory, no, uh, let me say. We found uh, five main actions that uh, the banks have to put in place. First of all, uh, we think that uh, it's necessary to have uh, an assessment of the liquidity position and the level of vulnerability of the bank. We perfectly know that it is a, a normal job for the bank, but what we propose is something of different. We typically analyze the liquidity position utilizing uh, also stress scenario in terms of macroeconomic trends, uh, but also in terms of deposit escape or uh, investor reaction. This type of analysis and benchmarking versus peers permit to have the points of vulnerability of the bank. The second action uh, from our point of view is to redesign the liquidity strategy of the bank. Number three is what we named liquidity steering. Our goal uh, is uh, to insert liquidity logics uh, into all the processes and the tool uh, that the bank use, uh, for example, MBO to develop uh, liquidity rewarding models to define liquidity policies, but also to develop uh, uh, tools in order to analyze the request of repricing from the client. Number four, in our opinion, is of course the deposit strategy and in particular the deployment, uh, the development of a specific model to estimate the sensitivity of the client to the pricing. Typically, we use machine learning and advanced analytics to develop this type of models. And typically, we leverage uh, the results of the model in order to redesign the overall deposit strategy of the bank and also considering a more granular approach to the, to the pricing to the deposit. And at the end, uh, let me say, uh, overall approach to measure better typically regulatory ratio, so uh, liquidity recovery ratio and a stable funding ratio. It's something uh, really useful, typically, in order to improve a regulatory ratio without uh, have new liquidity. 
We applied uh, several times this type of approach uh, and uh, we have uh, a library of uh, action uh, that we can propose uh, with uh, significant uh, benefit for the banks. So we're obviously seeing demand where we are at the moment in Europe. I'm trying to sort of get a feeder on sort of the representation of demand and therefore, you know, how big a problem this is, I guess. Joe, MTT, are we seeing the same sort of uh, strategies being deployed in the US and is there sort of a similar uptake? And if there is, what's the characteristic of the banks or the financial institutions that are coming to you at the moment? I think what Julio described is universal. Everybody is, at least in some measure, looking at the various levers that we've described to some extent. You know, one of the levers that most are pulling right now is rates, right? They're reacting and they're simply trying to retain as much of that deposit liquidity as possible. That's a very rudimentary reaction, but a necessary one. And then more systematically, given that liquidity is draining from the system, businesses are also reviewing their business portfolios and essentially saying, do we have businesses that we need to either shed or starve because we just don't have the ability to fund them or they're not pulling their own weight? And so that's another lever that we're seeing systematically uh, across the system. I think I would just complement what Joe said by saying that the competition for deposits is fierce right now. And I think Julio clearly pointed to some of the levers that banks are using to try to better assess, address, and then manage their liquidity. But the other thing to keep in mind is that the concern that depositors have had around the safety of their deposits and to what extent those deposits benefit from guarantees. I think the U.S. government, through the action in the past few months, introduced an element of security by saying, well, deposits over 250 are effectively protected. I think that lends some calm to the situation, but it's also prompted depositors to look beyond banks to say, perhaps their deposits are as well served sitting in money market funds as they are sitting in banks. The other thing we've observed play out is what's actually happened is the liquidity positions of the largest, biggest banks globally have been strengthened by the crisis because deposits have migrated to those banks. And I think to some extent exacerbated some of the liquidity challenges faced by, I'll use the term, mid-sized banks. It's interesting that we should dimensionalize that because the money market assets started the year somewhere around 4.8 trillion and now they're at 5.4. So we're seeing like a, a $600 billion increase into money market empty to, to your point. That's exiting bank unsecured liabilities. Deposits are also draining. They started around 18 trillion last year and they're down to about 17 trillion. But if you look at the long-term trend of deposits in the U.S. banking system, at least, it's easy to see a scenario where they go down to you know, 15 trillion, which is another 2 trillion away from that. So the competition point that MTT just made, I mean, that's what banks are up against is you just can't fund the balance sheets you had as that liquidity leaves the system. And that's what every bank is confronted with right now. And is it a case that the bigger the you are, the easier it's going to be? Because you benefit obviously from the scale, but then on the flip side, actually, does this shine a light on your cost of operations and, you know, how you run your bank? Well, one more point that's worth noting is if you look at the large, small bank split and deposits, the decline in deposits has actually gone down on a percentage basis for both in about the same amount. So it's not universally that small banks are losing. It's within the cohort, small, medium, and large. There are winners and losers. 
and in each of those buckets. And I think that that skewness is driven by different business models. And as MPT and Julio said, different perceptions of customers of the safety and soundness of those institutions. And so I think you're going to see a lot more dispersion of performance within any given category. That's interesting because it kind of looks at things like brand trust. You know, I'm thinking about from a consumer perspective because a lot of banks need to think about, you know, customer sensitivities going forward. And I was going to ask this question later on, but how much do you think neobanks and new digital players who can effectively undercut, in some cases, some of the larger players just because of their cost of operations and things of that nature, but might not have the brand trust yet to be able to sort of be a, if you like, quote unquote, safe haven? How much do you think that they're potentially under threat because of this? Or actually, is it because their pricing is potentially so aggressive, it's actually causing an additional catalyst to the systemic risk that we've seen? I'll take a provocative view, which is I think that that landscape is going to be significantly disrupted, even though they're the aggressive price players. Because the old model of I'm just going to grow and I don't need to show profits, that regime is gone. And so now you need to have a balanced business model. For that, you need a proper balance sheet. And so you're going to need deposit liquidity and you'll need good assets to lend against. And they don't all have that universally. So I think we're going to see significant disruption, even winners and losers, even in that space. But you're right that they are creating a situation where the competition is even more heated and more rapid than in prior rate change regimes. I wanted to sort of come into, because we're coming on to the last section, I wanted to talk about sort of where did this lead and just go back, Joe, to a point you made right at the beginning where you talked about a regime change. Just wanted to drill into that a little bit more in terms of looking forward. Rates are seemingly continuing to increase. In the UK at the moment, we're talking about potentially another maybe two rate hikes between now and the end of the year. Inflation is still high across the globe. We've had Germany's entered a recession and the contributory factors to all of this just don't seem to be going away and there might be a new normal therefore on the horizon. So in terms of where this leads in the next, let's say, I don't know, 18 months to two years and defining your term regime change, is that how you see this? Is that, you know, there's actually going to be a new normal and the change at the top is going to be in terms of business models, in terms of sort of outlook for banks is going to be permanent? My answer to that is yes. And here's why. We're seeing a systemic shift in the even the mix of deposits, outflows of savings to term deposits. And so there's a whole structure shift in the deposit book. You know, less checking, far more term deposits, which are higher cost, even though they're more stable. And so the rates, and just give you an idea, in 2022, the industry, the weighted average rate on U.S. deposits was under 10 basis points. And yet we're headed to a regime where it could easily be weighted cost of deposits of 250 basis points, right? That's just the rising rate environment, but also a structural shift in the mix between savings, checking, and ends in turn. And that's going to change the cost of fund structure for every bank in the system. So that's part of the regime change. It doesn't seem to me that we're going back to a world of the low rate environment we had post the financial crisis. And the central banks have signaled that, I think, pretty uh, substantially. But I'd love, Julia and MTT, to hear your thoughts on that. I totally agree. We have to expect a, a new normal in which uh, the, the liquidity has a cost. No, And this is normal. <laughs> no, 
in the last 10 years, uh, probably we saw a, a situation that is not normal because the, the liquidity for free is not a normal situation. So the banks uh, probably will return to be the banks uh, to have a, a balance sheet and the profit and loss uh, that is also driven by the interest rate. And the business model probably return to be a, a business model in which liquidity is the core business of the bank. Of course, something will change. I'm totally agree with Joe and MTT that the speed of the change in the banking industry is something totally new and is something that the bank has to consider in the strategy. Has to be more speedy in changing is a, a big challenge for the bank for the future. I'll just build on points that are great points that both Julio and Joe made and that it's also important that banks have the ability to allocate the cost of both capital and funding to their businesses to incentivize better decision-making that actually prices capital and liquidity as an incentive or a disincentive to supporting clients either with lending or other transactional payment products. And I think once banks are able to refine how they price important elements of incentive for the businesses, I think we're going to see a shift in how banks own and manage their liquidity. And it starts not at the enterprise level, but at the business level. I think that's also one of the learnings from this last crisis that uh, is actually going to make banks stronger. As a byproduct of that, though, would you see, let's say, credit and credit provisioning going down in theory over the next six months, just as these banks sort of try and transition themselves to what this new normal is? And then therefore, because of that, they take sort of a risk-averse stance on things like funding and capital, especially to small businesses. I just wondered what your take was on that. Well, among the things we're seeing is that banks, at least in the US, are reviewing their underwriting standards, right? And there is evidence now to say that uh, banks are constraining credit, but to what extent they support or differentiate the deployment of credit is still to be seen in terms of the data. But I think the important thing to keep in mind is it's a very important exercise to make good lending decisions based on underwriting criteria that reflect the risk tolerance or the risk appetite of the bank. Banks are not going to withdraw from extending credit wholesale. They're actually going to just be more thoughtful around where they deployed credit or in capital on what terms. And uh, it's important to price credit in ways that reflect the risk of your borrower. So that's, I think, among the areas where we're advising our clients is to enhance not just the measurement, but how they monitor the, the deployment of credit to ensure, Adam, to your point, that they can manage the provisioning for potential credit losses in the future. I'll just stick with you, MTT, just a quick one on regulation going forward. Do you see, once this calms down, as we say, we hit this new normal regime change, do you see there being any differences in the way that the Fed actually supervises banks? Is there anything, certainly I'm thinking about it from a US perspective, and Julia, we could talk about European perspectives in a sec, but do you see any differences in the way the Fed operates in this space going forward, just based on what we've seen and where we think we're going to go? The answer is yes. And so we've already heard signaling to say that they've enhanced their liquidity risk monitoring, and they're going to be actually working with the banks to make sure 
that they understand what the current practice is as your baseline, but then where they drive things like the importance of scenarios for liquidity to make sure you have a broader perspective on how does your liquidity perform in different types of stress? That's one area where, where we know the regulators are going to be more critical. Um, the other area that we're seeing is liquidity and capital are complement. So I think it's also very important to make sure that banks are adequately capitalized through the cycle. And here we're referring to the credit cycle. So on both fronts, Adam, to your point, the focus is going to be liquidity and capital. But I think there's also going to be an opportunity to make sure that banks and importantly, businesses are owning elements of liquidity and capital management. And they're not just deferring to centralized treasury or finance teams or risk teams that sit in what we refer to as second line. This has to be something that is owned by the businesses to my prior point around pricing liquidity and capital in terms of how you allocate that to businesses. I think that's one of many opportunities. But I think the regulators are going to feel in the hot seat to enhance some of the requirements in these two areas in particular. But remember, these are still subject to review and comment periods that mean that some of these changes may not actually be implemented for a good two to three years. So there is a lag between the dialogue they're having currently with banks and when these banks will be subject to those new requirements. Yeah, and Judy, um, things are no different in Europe. <laughs> no different in Europe, absolutely. <laughs> Consider that uh, ACB, uh, for the first time this year, uh, inserted uh, the liquidity risk uh, as a priority for the supervisor. And uh, from the first parts of the year, uh, ACB started to request uh, very, very strong uh, assessment uh, about the liquidity position uh, of the bank. So the approach is... Uh, totally the same for a problem that is at worldwide level, a challenge, not a problem. I wanted just to touch on one point before we go, and that's around innovation. So a lot of innovation over the last sort of five to 10 years, maybe that's a bit too generous, but even the last five years, has been off the back, obviously, of a low rate environment where, you know, cheap capital has meant that essentially that sort of startup mentality where you can fast fail was acceptable and actually in some cases promoted because it was a way of getting the right product at the end. Do you feel that both from a, I guess, a startup perspective, but also from innovation within a banking setting as well? So, you know, sort of some internal innovations are going to be put on hold. Do you see the rate of sort of interesting developments that come out of, let's say, the fintech scene will be damaged by this maybe in the short term or the medium term in terms of the volume of ideas and the pace of innovation? Or is it just a case that, Joe, back to your point, the fundamentals of looking for profitability are going to become so strong that actually only the, the strongest business models will be backed and it's potentially therefore a good thing that that might come out of this because, you know, there'll be more stringent processes aligned to funding decisions? That's a great question, Adam. I think innovation will not go away. I obviously, the venture community with failure of SVB, you know, took a bit of a hit. It'll be a bumpy road coming back. But we're going to see a continued foot race and innovation between the incumbents from banks and innovation from startups. It just might be tougher funding environments for those startups. And I think the point you made around looking for a balance, right? It was okay to just run AAA depository or neobanks without having a really solid view of balance sheet profitability. I think we're in a world where that's going to be more heavily emphasized 
going forward. So too, the banks have not been the best innovators historically, but I think they know it's on them to do better. And we've seen a lot of them come out with statements saying they're going to be investing in their businesses and looking for innovation, things, places like embedded finance and other areas. So I think that that's going to be healthy and great for clients overall. That will not change, but I'd love to hear NTT and Julia, your thoughts as well. What we've also seen redeploying their cost savings, because many banks are undergoing performance improvement and cost transformation plans. And I think that's also very healthy because there's an opportunity to self-fund innovation by actually saving money in one area in the bank to then redeploy to, as Joe said, embedded lending or generative AI. And let's be clear, you know, banks have been using AI for years. Predictive AI has been in the mix. What we're talking about now are opportunities to leverage generative AI as a game changer. I think that's one of many themes where the investment budgets of banks are still going to be supportive of ways to capitalize on these new trends in ways that will further differentiate the stronger, better banks from the fraudder pool. I just wanted to bring that perspective to the conversation as well, just to build on Joe's point. Julio, any thoughts from your end? Yeah, the thank you. Innovation, absolutely, it's important. It's more important respect to the last uh, big financial crisis. And uh, it's important also to manage the liquidity now. Consider that uh, now we are supporting some, uh, some banks, uh, in deploying a specific model to intercept client that want to exit from the current account and want to move the liquidity. So, and we are using, of course, advanced analytics and machine learning in, in this. So also, if we think about the situation of the, the liquidity, to have an innovative approach could be interesting. Let me say the new cost of the liquidity that for banks for now is also source of profit can also support new investment in innovation. So also this aspect is important to, to consider in, uh, in this environment. Great stuff. We have reached time. Thank you so much for joining. That was great. I learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners will too. That was awesome. What I'll do is I'll go around the three of you just Wherever the best place is for people to contact you, then please let us know, be it LinkedIn or Bain.com, whatever it is. Joe, I'll stop with yourself. Uh, LinkedIn, all of our profiles are up on Bain and on LinkedIn. So wherever you can find us, we're there. Awesome. MTT? And we're happy to make time for a good dialogue. Uh, you're happy to reach us directly via Bain or through LinkedIn. But uh, I think this is just the continuation of a good dialogue we're having with our clients and we're happy to broaden that out with others that may have been listeners. Awesome. And uh, Julia? Thank you. And uh, LinkedIn, of course, or uh, the Bain.com uh, website. And uh, of course, uh, let's wait over you in Europe and Italy to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> and you can find me also at Bain.com uh, on LinkedIn or Adam D8 on Twitter. And you can find the Decipher podcast on all your favorite podcast channels. If you enjoyed that, please leave us a preferably five-star review on Apple and Spotify. Also, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode going forward. And we'll see you next time for more. Oh, 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 o